Coming up next, the booking reads King Lear. Nathan Robertson, your humble and obedient host, joined by my good friends over there. It's the pastor who's a master of reading. What's up? I just said it's a pastor who's a master of reading, but I'm going to say More it's like the, the, yeah, the right. pastor who's a master of reading, or as Jake likes to say, the pastor who's a master of reading. I don't know why one says the or the. I don't know if there's a rule or if there's just a common usage kind of thing or why I do either one. I just go according to my ear, I think. Brandon, your thoughts? I think you go according to your ear, too. That sounds like a very political answer. Like, a uh, there's actually a way to do it, and I suck, and you've noticed it for years and held <clears throat> been bitter against me. Well, would it change your uh, perception of the problem if you realized I don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> the or the? I was distracted. What? Uh, Jake is, uh, this is Brandon, our distracted friend. The, Hi. Uh, what is he? He's not the pastor. He's I'm not the pastor. Reading. He is your humble and obedient host. Nope. What are you? Scholar who's I a baller. No, I'm a Schol- scholar who's a baller. You're a scholar who's a baller of reading right there. That's right. The and the, Brandon. When do you say which one? When do I say which one? Mm-hmm. Like when in front of the pastor who's a master? Or the pastor who's a master? I would say the pastor. The the pastor. Would you use That's the word? That's what I said. Would you say the? He acted like that was weird. I did? No, he did. He did. The, the pastor. I think that it all has to do with sound. The pastor is easier, rolls off the tongue easier than the pastor. Yeah, I think usually I say the pastor who's a master of reading, like when I'm doing my intro, but the pastor who's a master is something that I would, like if I was going to emphasize it. Well, yeah, if you're going to emphasize it, you want to go the, you would say the. The. Because it's unusual and therefore the emphasis yes. is stressed when you say the, because that's not the typical way you'd say it. It's like putting it in vocal italic. Yeah. So the way Jake says it is fine. Yeah. There, I'm back. Hi, guys. Hey, Brandon. <laughs> We're having fun with words today, folks, and uh, everybody's been introduced, so let's get right into it, eh? Yeah. We're talking about King Lear, written by the immortal bard of Stratford-upon-Avon himself, Billy S. Shakespeare. Yeah. And what's that sound? Already. Let's let's do it. The gun's going off. Man. So let's do this context. For fans of the bookening, they'll know that Shakespeare is kind of old hat at this point, Mm -hmm. So, but it's always fun to revisit the... uh, bard mm-hmm. and talk about and talk about him so raise the talk, bard let, let's raise the bard let's raise the bard <laughs> uh, shakespeare is actually on a delay this year shakespeare month is august oh that's right we're well past august what happened harry potter just ate harry it up. potter ate the... it all up we thought we were going to do harry potter for episode 100 and the move right on and then we talk said about... oh well maybe we'll do harry potter for episodes 100 and 101 a two-parter and then we, you know, let's do more Harry Potter episodes than all of our Jane Austen and uh, Tolstoy combined. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> and so we did. And so we did. And I have feel absolutely no shame about that. I like Austen better. I like Tolstoy better. But Harry Potter is something that your kids will actually want to read, and you'll have to make a decision about, and you'll need to be informed. And people really like it, and it's worth asking hard yeah, questions about things that people really like. You should read yeah. Austen, right? Yeah, because no normal child wants to read Shakespeare. No. I mean, I don't think so. No. They? Yeah. That was only strong-armed into it. Yeah. As a, as a high school student. Yep. By, by a what, punk teacher. By a punk teacher. A story that you will no doubt tell 
for the third time. At um, least the third time. At least the third time. Yeah. Coming up. And the second time today, truth and, be told. Yep. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You've told it today already? Well, I, I think was, uh, actually drop it. Well, this was a couple of weeks ago now, but people can go and listen to what's my, my interview on the Forma podcast. The Forma podcast with David, our David friend Kern. David that likes to talk to the end and the Tim hosts, about books. Uh, close reads. Did yeah. it go well? Yeah. I thought it went well. Sweet. It was fun. Yeah. People should listen, go listen to, to it. it. I'll go listen to it. So Shakespeare context. Shakespeare context. As we began to mention nigh on many a minute ago, you have now done this twice in yep. one form or another. That's right. But we never tired of hearing we never tire of hearing Brandon talk about Shakespeare. So let's talk about Shakespeare. That's let's true. do it. So as we've mentioned numerous times in the past, there's not a whole lot that we know about Shakespeare. We know that he was born in fifteen sixty four. Um, we don't even really know the exact date that he was born. We know that he was christened on April 26th. And we know that he, typically at the time, you would be christened a few days after you were born. So he was most likely born on April 23rd. And he died, I'm pretty sure, on April 23rd. Um, let's get his exact date. Because people like the sort of... Yeah, he died April 23rd, 1616. So the reason people like to think that he was born on April 23rd is because there was a, th I think there was some sort of theory at one point or some sort of... Um, Mark Twain. Yeah, that you would go out on the date you were born. Basically. Mark Twain went and came in with the Leonids. Is that what he did? And then went out with them? Yeah, and then he went out with the comet as well. Yeah. So there was this idea that for a genius, you would be, you would go out on the day that you were born. Nice. So like I'm that. definitely nice dying November 15th. There you go. Yeah. Even if you have to just make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a genius, darn it. As I throw myself <laughs> off a bridge. <laughs> that's one way to do it. But that's not how yet. Shakespeare did it. He died. Um, you get drunk at your daughter's wedding or something like that. Uh-huh. And fall yep. and hit your head. And Spoilers, Jake. You hit on your head with a canoe. He ate too much, drank too much, partied too hard. I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about him between those points, um, we know that his father was... There's not a lot to say about Shakespeare. Between well, I mean about... Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> wrote some plays. Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah, wrote yeah. some stuff and, you know, um, <laughs> reshaped... Yeah, all that's all Western we have to say about Shakespeare. That's the wonderful <laughs> That's the wonderful context that we're you used know. to. As far as we know about his biography. Right. Uh, so we know that he Jake's was born in Stratford. Fun, Brandon. Stra I, I know he's having fun. I'm having fun, too. Um, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Stratford-upon-Avon. Mm -hmm. His father was at, actually fairly similar to Flannery O'Connor, who we'll be looking at here soon. Her father had ups and downs with his career, and so did Shakespeare's father's. He had some really highs where he was high up in the uh, government, the local guilds and stuff that ruled the city, and then he would have crashes and not have quite as, bit of, uh, quite as much money. But he was a fairly prominent leader within the city. And so that meant that Shakespeare was able to get a decent education as far as we know. The education at the time would have been grammar school. He would have learned his Latin, which is important for our, for our play that we're looking at today. He would have learned his Greek and Roman histories. And in particular, he would have read things like Plutarch, Livy, and the stories uh, that would have given him the story of King Lear, hmm. which actually comes from, and we'll talk about this later, but it does come from some old sources that he most likely would have had access to as a schoolboy. So we know that around the age of 18, good, good age to be married. Mm -hmm. He married Anne Hathaway, not the actress, not Anne the actress. Hathaway. She's not a time traveler, but mm -hmm. another Anne Hathaway, whom That's I'm sure. disappointing. It is very disappointing. What's your yeah. evidence on that? That it wasn't the Anne Hathaway as we know. And that she's not a time traveler. I don't actually have any evidence. Have you met Anne Hathaway? No. Have you seen her not travel through time? No. Well, there you have. My yeah. dear. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor's dad, I'm thinking, is actually Shakespeare. Well, that would be wonderful. 
Orrin Flannery O'Connor is actually Shakespeare's sister. And her dad was Shakespeare's dad who had access to a wonder machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. That is, that is deep. This That's is getting, some foreshadowing right This is getting there. crazy. Yeah, people should take note of wonder machine. And I'm not going to say anything else but that, but yeah. He did have three children. And what would it have been like to have been the uh, son or daughter of Shakespeare? Just take a moment to think about that. There's a consummation I really thought about it until, to be wished. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that until right now. That would have been something else. He had Susanna, Hamnet. Hamnet? Not Hamlet, <laughs> but Hamnet and Judith. And let's look at, let's go over here to Wikipedia because I believe each of them, yeah, each of these people, they actually have a link. So you can go and you can look up the life and death of Shakespeare's children, trace down the lineage, see if you can actually find an heir of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Maybe try to go marry the said heir or said uh, person who would be in his lineage. Um, that would be something you could do with your yep. life. <laughs> that is, that, is, that some, is one thing you could do with your life. Something you could dedicate your life to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's... <laughs> why is this course of action? There's a lot of things in life that you can do. So, back to Shakespeare. Back to Shakespeare. At the age of 18, married Anne Hathaway. Then by 19, um, 15, 1585, we know that he's in London producing plays. And so this is this would put him at about 21. And we know that he spends quite a bit of his time in London writing plays. And by the mid-1590s, he's a very famous playwright. He's mentioned by guys like Ben Jonson as being one of the premier poets and writers of his age. Um, there's the famous line that's said about him. I can't remember to call it off the top of my head. But the famous line that's said about you. Ben Jonson. We should look it up. Um, yeah, he has, a, he has a famous quote that he says about Shakespeare. And it's one of the things that we know about Shakespeare is, is Ben Jonson said this about him. And it's one, one of the best evidences against the scandal that we'll briefly mention that people, and people actually think this, um, that Shakespeare didn't exist, but we know better. We may know from personal experience. Um, ben Jonson said, Indeed. A little further to make thee a room, a quibble is to Shakespeare what luminous vapors are to the traveler. He follows it at all adventures. It is sure to lead him out of his way and sure to engulf him in the mire. He was not of an age, but for all time. There you go. That's the famous quote about Shakespeare. He was not for an age, but he was for all time. Ben Jonson, very famous playwright in his own regard, Mm -hmm. looked to Shakespeare and admired him. Just to take a step back then and look at London, at what at what the the scene was at the time, the way that plays were looked at, the way that art was looked at. We are now, this would have been post-Renaissance, early Elizabethan, uh, right in the middle of the Elizabethan age. Shakespeare lived up right until the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. A few years after that was when, I think she died in 1613, he died in 1616. Sounds something along 1605, the line, yeah. something like that. But he didn't live much longer than the end of her reign. So he was right in the golden era of the Elizabethan age. Renaissance was over. Art had its place as the property of patrons, right? And so especially in Italy and other European cities, but this had then carried over into England with the English courts. And you would also have patrons of the English courts would patronize, not in the way that we think of patronization today, but they would actually patronize specific groups of artists. While we typically think of Renaissance art as being like painting and sculpture, that would have been more Italian, more kind of more French and stuff like that. But in, in England, it would become poetry. It would become the theater. But this would be the culture in England. And actually, part of the reason, I think, that you would have the fertile ground for novels and poetry coming out of England that we would have in the 17 and 1800s was because the patronization was particularly aimed at things like theater and poetry. Guys like John Donne, they would have been nobles writing for the noble courts, right? He wouldn't have had a patron, but it would have been a part of that tradition of nobles writing poetry so that other nobles could read 
these little books, and they would have been called folios or some sort of small edition that would have been limited print. John Dunn, he wrote two different poems about erotic poems about fleas, Brandon. That's right. He did. That's all he ever wrote. One of them was about how a a flea drank the lady's blood and then drank his blood. And he was, and then the second one, the other one was like, there's a flea that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then he wrote some really nice sacred stuff. Yeah. Well, that's because he got saved. (laughs) This has been Context with Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) This is why Nathan doesn't do our context. (laughs) So back to... He had some wilder, younger days, Nathan. So... Back to patron culture. Patron culture, yes. Um, Shakespeare would have been a part of this culture. He actually was a part of a troupe that he started, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. They would have both played at the theater that he would eventually found. We'll get there in a minute because that's the other that's the other half, the other dark side to the globe. Mm-hmm. This is the glittery court side that we're talking about right now. He would have actually performed at um, some of the manor houses that we would, some of, the, some of those that actually would carry over into Jane Austen's era. He would have performed big, uh, what you would have called masks or that big theatrical performances, almost like we would think of an opera today, where there would have been this huge event put on because the queen was visiting. Mm. And I mentioned this book, I think last time, uh, Stephen Greenblatt's Will in the World. Yeah. It's a fantastic book if you just want to get immersed in what he, uh, a good, but liberal, but good historical scholar presents as what it would have been like to actually have lived during the Elizabethan era. And he just gives you, it's almost like reading a novel. Here's what it would have been like to have been an Elizabethan. And so he has a portion where he talks about these sorts of masks and you get the the huge, the sets that would have been built. There was a famous scene, a set designer at the time who would have worked closely with Shakespeare and some of these guys to build these huge elaborate sets at these houses. And they would have just been huge gilded events. The queen's coming and you pull out all the stops and just, it's just spectacular ritual. Isn't there a story of some guy going broke, putting one of those yes, on for... exactly. Yeah. And so these Shakespeare would have been invited to play at these sorts of events, especially Shakespeare, because his plays were highly respected. His Even at the time, like we saw with Ben Jonson, who Ben Jonson was respected as well, but he would still say about Shakespeare, he was a man for all time. Everybody knew that Shakespeare had the chops, right? Um, he was respected. And this is why... So just then a quick little caveat, because I don't want to give too much time to this silliness. Yes. Um, this is why I really don't have much patience for people who say that Shakespeare was not Shakespeare, that there was not an actual Shakespeare who wrote Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. It's because of things like Ben Jonson. At the time, acting was not seen with as much respect as writing. And so for Ben Jonson to have said something like that about Shakespeare probably means Shakespeare wasn't just an, a playwright. I mean, just not that he wasn't just an actor, mm-hmm. that he was something more, that he actually wrote these plays. He wrote the sonnets that are attributed to him. And Ben Jonson being in that circle and being, I think, the guy who got really, really drunk with Shakespeare when he died would have known Shakespeare. I think I remember that. Yeah. yeah. That I mean, was he was Johnson. very close to Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And so, or at least as close as anyone would have been right. at the time, you know, and then we read things about, we read guys like E.B. White, Ishiguro, these guys who are very private with their lives so that we really know about as much about them as we do about Shakespeare. It's totally believable that someone who lived 500 years ago could be the greatest genius to have ever lived and yet have had the modest, quiet life that he had. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, yeah, I have no real patience for people who, I think it's... I mean, I understand it must just be fun. It's like Bigfoot oh, sure. I, I can understand the conspiracy kind of truthers, but a lot of it is just pure snobbery. When you know, it's just like, well, uh, a mere son of a whatever couldn't have done all this and known all these references. How could it just be one man? It must have been a no. You know, only an aristocrat could write. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's 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 kind of snobby. 
Yeah, which is interesting because when you say that sort of thing, you're also then saying liberals, even though they're about multiculturalism, they still believe in the intelligentsia Mm -hmm. and they believe in the people Mm -hmm. who have the right to speak for the people. Right. And those are usually the highly educated professors who have the right to then speak on behalf of the people that they would never even want to mingle with. Right. Right. And so that's actually what it sounds like, which is interesting because typically those accusations against Shakespeare come from very conservative circles. Yeah, it's weird. Which is, I don't I don't quite understand where the impulse is coming from, other than the conservative circles it does come from would have been those who would have been following in the train of um, that guy you so like Brent. to do impressions of, Sobrin and... Oh, uh, uh, oh Buckley. Uh, Buckley. Buckley, yes. Which that is a very refined upper crust. I was driving down Meridian Street in Indianapolis today, mm-hmm. and you see these big mansions. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of people, the kinds of people who were conservative because it serves their politics so that they can have low taxes and live in these huge houses that are. And they think unless someone is one of us, they can't have done anything uh, worth note, uh, worth noting. Or, they yeah. can't have done. And to be fair. They, they can't have done anything. And to be fair, I, I actually like Joe Sobern. Yeah. I should say that. I like Sobern. I, I, I think the only thing I don't like about Sobern is his Shakespeare theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a weird, out of place philosophy and a guy who generally you everybody who wants to aspires to be a reader and a clear thinker should read right so joe Sobern, wholeheartedly he and eb white right up there mm-hmm. so where were we agreed uh we were talking about joe Sobern. we're taking digressions we're taking that's what okay, that, yeah. a digression the soul we're of walking into the, the way i'm ima- so uh, i just got the impression brown. that we're like walking down the little narrow streets of london mm-hmm. and they're you know little <laughs> byways yeah. yeah we're just taking digressions as we go that's so. what we do yeah so we've talked about then the patronage culture, and then there's the flip side to that. And you have to understand what allowed for the Elizabethan upper mantle, the crust, to have its wealth was rapid change in the uh, economy of England at the time. Under, Elizabeth, uh, under the Elizabethan age, you had this immense amount of wealth just pouring in from either exploration that was happening outside of the realm. She conquered Spain, or she at least defeated them in that famous sea battle that we should mm-hmm. all know the name of. If this was Jeopardy, we'd lose. Something um, involving the Spanish Armada. Yes, uh, that's it. The Battle of the Spanish Armada. Thank you. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> she that I, famous I, battle I, against I, the Spanish Armada. What's what, that what is that? The, the Battle against the Spanish Armada. Yeah. Thank you. And so she, England was a powerhouse at the time. Wealth was pouring in. You had textiles. You had industry. I mean, um, you had the birth of the guilds. Things like the Freemasons and stuff like that in America today are still holdovers from this era of the guilds, where you would have societies and groups of men. They would have cobblers and coopers. And, and a lot of the last names we have today came from these guilds that were put together and they would they were like early unions mm-hmm. and they would fight for good fair pay for their people and what ha- and we and we've talked about this what happens when people have more money than they know what to do with the art they spend it okay yeah and they spend it on generally the arts entertainment mm-hmm. they want to be entertained because they have free time and they want to go out and they want to take their wife out and have some fun and but the conflict you have is that under elizabethan uh, the Elizabethan rule, you also had fairly strict moral restrictions. Plays, except for the upper class, were looked down upon. If they weren't the sort of gilded production, they would have been seen as something that was immoral almost. And so, especially in London, there were severe restrictions. Well, then not entirely unfairly either, because... No, there were some awful plays, and Ben Johnson wrote some awful plays. Chris Marlowe, who was another guy at the time, the three big playwrights at the time would have been Shakespeare, Marlowe, and Ben mm-hmm. Johnson. And Marlowe was fairly racy. If you go and, I mean, if you read some of the poetry of the Elizabethan courtly poets, man, mm-hmm. it's, it's some nasty stuff. Not even really innuendo. It's just, you can't even imagine rap songs being quite as right. explicit. Body. 
body. Yeah, as body. But if you read, that's right. You know, I think one thing that if we can deal with is in different ways. But Christians should understand plays, playwright, entertainment. It's always been looked down upon. You can find any church father and see what they say about it, and they'll be like, "Oh, don't." Go see plays that are put on by people who are basically prostitutes or your yeah, morals it's, it's will... just being an actor, an actress... It's just basically it's just synonymous with synonymous being a Synonymous with prostitution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, there was a sexual aspect to it, but they would all say that simply acting yeah. in and of itself is akin to prostitution just emotionally, right. what you're doing. Yeah. And there's a lot of dangers associated with it. I was just reading, I think it was Thomas Watson, famous Puritan writer. And he, I think he's talking about the seventh commandment. And one of his applications is don't go see plays. Yeah. One of the ways you avoid adultery is just don't go see plays. And that deserves its own episode. Yeah. We're not going to solve that problem. I just wanted um, people to be bothered by it. Yeah. I think it's right to be bothered by it. Yeah. yeah. Be bothered by it. Go solve it yourself. Or, you know, maybe we'll solve it in another place. But it was also the same then of the same environment of, if you couldn't have it be sort of the ritualized productions, the masks for the upper class elite, then it must be body and bad. And so what was the solution? Well, if you didn't, you couldn't do it in London. So you just bought a muddy tract of ground across the Thames, built a bridge over it and built your theater there. And that's, that's what it was the early globe. And that's what he did with some other investors. They went and they bought some ground right across the Thames and they built the globe and people had a great time there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Beer drinking, watching these plays, and what's fun about think what's fun about understanding the way that these plays happened at the time is they are absolutely nothing like Shakespeare in the Park. Right, right. Today we think of Shakespeare in the Park as people get bring their wine. You go, you might have some fun, you might have some good old Renaissance revelry, but it's not nearly as crazy as it actually would have been. They had even in the middle of a play like Lear, they would have had men come out dressed in drag and doing dances and stuff and trying to make people laugh. And it was just, it would have been stuff that makes you think, yeah, it's probably would would have been good for London to have had control over this. But a mix of all sorts of people, you would have had the middle class and the lower class and the upper class all coming. They would The upper class would have had their tears up above. The lower class would have all been down in the mud and muck near the stage. And that would have been what it would be like to be in the Globe Theater. You can look up pictures of the early Globe Theater. Um, I think it eventually burned down, but then was rebuilt again. And it still exists to this day, the Globe. You can go and you can see yourself a Shakespeare play at the actual Globe, mm. which uh, is on my bucket list. Yeah, be fun. It would be fun. Year 10. Yep. With all this Patreon yeah, money. Yeah, man. Yeah, we've got our own patron system that we labor under. <sighs> Wouldn't that be fun? We go and we do an episode actually at Jane Austen's home and mm -hmm. stuff like that. He's... Two authors that have been with us since the beginning. Yep. Hey, British Bookening fans, why don't you just pay for us to come out and do some live shows? Yeah. Yeah. Brad. Hey, guess yeah. what? Come We're on, doing Brad. live shows. I don't know when this airs, but... Yeah. Uh, let's see. The, our live show in Madison might already be done by the time that this one comes out, right? We may have just uh, performed our first live show in Madison, Wisconsin yeah. by the time yeah. uh, this comes out. It went fantastic. It did. Of course it did. Everyone loved us. We Rave reviews. Brandon was ovations. almost swarmed by young ladies. Yeah, that's right. Right off, kinda, this, right off the stage. Uh, muscle art From now through. on, he's going to have to wear a shirt that says, I belong to Anna. I belong that's to right. Me. Yeah. He goes, yeah. Yep. But people just wanted their pictures, their autographs. You know, we, we did yeah. what we could. You got to. They had I love you written on their eyelids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the globe. That would have been the environment. It is strange for us to think because we today we put Shakespeare in this sort of heightened art class mm -hmm. where it would be like going to a classical concert or something like that. It's something that either very cultured and refined and smart people do or very rich people do. Mm -hmm. 
but nobody else really does it. But at the time, that was not what Shakespeare was. And that's important to realize because Shakespeare's language, as difficult as it is for us today to comprehend, his language was basically common speech poeticized, right? Like rap today. Yeah. yeah. So he took, and he invented, or at least revolutionized blank verse. And blank verse, for people who don't know, it's where you take an I am which I am is a poetic foot. And mm-hmm. all that means is you have an unstressed syllable followed by sing, uh, by, followed by a stressed syllable. Mm-hmm. That's an I am. It's called iambic pentameter. That means there's five of them within each line. Go and read any Shakespeare play and you'll see that it's made up of iambic pentameter lines. And that's what we call blank verse. The reason he did that is because we most often speak in iams. It, language naturally flows from stress to unstress, stress to unstress. as the easiest way to speak. And so most, the most natural way to speak is in iambic. When people, when guys like, um, oh, what's the uh, leader of the playwrights in A Midsummer's Night Dream? What was his name? Oh. Uh, uh, bo- bottom? Sure, yeah. yeah. Bottom. That's Kevin Klein, yeah. Um, <laughs> everybody would have thought he was hilarious because everybody would have understood what he was saying. It would have not been difficult mm-hmm. at the time. Even though the language would have been a little bit heightened, it would have been similar to us reading J.R. Tolkien or something. Right. Um, especially in a play like King Lear. So that's one thing to take into account when you're imagining what it would have been like to go to the Globe at the time. Mm-hmm. Taking your wife, you're going across the Thames. It would have probably smelled really bad. All the bodies together. Like uh, you can, you can kind of tell Shakespeare had this sort of visceral experience with it. Like when in Caesar... Uh, yeah, Julius Caesar. I always imagine this comes from his personal experience where Julius Caesar like says, I can smell all your breath out in the crowd, like your halitosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just imagine Shakespeare could, he knew this, but he still loved it and he wrote the plays. So we know that towards the end of his life, like the last three or four years, he gave up playwriting, went back home to Avon upon Stratford and lived with his wife in a nice little house. You mean Stratford upon Avon? Stratford upon Avon. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Avon upon Stratford. <laughs> what an idiot, Brandon. <laughs> Lived with his wife, and as far as we, he he was a businessman, he invested in things and had quite the wealth built up from the success of the globe. So that when he died, he left a nice little fortune to his family, and we have his will intact. And that's one of the probably strongest pieces of counter evidence as to Shakespeare having been Shakespeare is that his will is kind of just ho hum and average. But one, it was a will, so why would, why would he care? Right. Two, he That's had a, a very strong piece of evidence to <laughs> me. Two, two, he had a lawyer draft it for him. So you know, I mean, I write colorful things for to say on uh, my podcasts, and I would hate for anyone to doubt the veracity of the fact that I do that because they read some legal document later in my life. Yeah, because they mm-hmm. get a hold of your. Uh, Grocery list. Nathan was really amusing on Sound of Sanity. There's no way he could have written this IRA thing. Like, no. no, this IRA is, we know, is something that Nathan wrote. So probably he couldn't have been the amusing one writing for Sound of Sanity. Right. It was Ben Solser all yes, along. All, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> ben Solser is very amusing. So people should listen to Sound of Sanity. Ben Solser's great. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think you were contradicting that. Yeah, I just yeah, wanted yeah. to throw in a plug for Sound of Sanity. Oh, yeah. Everybody should listen to Sound of Sanity. Everyone should listen to Sound yep. of Sanity. So we have Stratford-upon-Avon, Anne Hathaway, his wife's waiting there for him. Mm-hmm. Just and finished so, filming Princess Diaries 2. Just finished Prince, filming Princess Diary 2. He has his children. And as we've said throughout this context, we don't know a whole lot about his family life, so people love to speculate. They love to speculate that his family life was unhappy, and so you get stupid, stupid, stupid movies like Shakespeare in Love, right? Where we think that he must have committed adultery. Mm-hmm. And people, and one of the best example, one of the best pieces of evidence people have for this is the sonnets, where he's writing it to the dark lady, and then also people love to accuse him of being a homosexual because part of those are written to a, a man. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's not like being one of the greatest playwrights and having one of the greatest imaginations of all time that he could have been imagining these through another persona. There's no other places in his work where he no. adopts personas or characters yeah. or... And so it's it can't it can't possibly to, be yeah. it can't possibly be that he's writing these sonnets from the perspective of another pers- of a persona which is very which is what poetry is no poet would ever say that they're actually the poet and they're always adopting some sort of persona that's how you write poetry and it's just stupid but people love to speculate mm-hmm. and also every all his other poems are not written from his perspective so for what that's worth but I like to speculate that he was unhappy. And in his will, he left his wife their bed, right? Their second best bed. Their second best bed. Yeah, their second best bed. I've heard that this most likely means that the first best bed was reserved for guests. Guests. And so actually what he was doing was he was leaving her her their bed. Yeah. (laughs) So she could remember remember him. And that's actually for any married couple, it's a fairly sweet gesture. I mean, she got other things too, but he left her their second best bed. And also it's just people don't realize the expectation just would have been that the children would have taken care of her. So to yeah. a certain extent, when she's left, when she feels a little left out in the will, it's like eh, she was taken care of. And we have no evidence from any of his children or from anything, anything from her that there was unhappiness involved. Mm-hmm. So, and we know that Shakespeare knew how to party because that's how he died, <laughs> partying <laughs> at, the, at the wedding of one of his daughters, right? And so got really drunk. I believe it was with Ben Johnson. Johnson slipped, and the next day was dead. Mm. So, and thus ended the greatest innovator and creative mind with the English language. Partied too hard. <laughs> That's how Dumbledore should have died. <laughs> Partying too hard. Partying too hard. Been yeah. way better. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty certain. I remember for a past episode on Shakespeare doing a little bit of research on the whole second bed thing. I think it's pretty certain that you know the the whole rule of hospitality was your best bed belongs to is your guest room yes people can hear us talk about that on whatever last whatever yeah. last year's shakespeare episode it's was. him leaving the second best bed to his wife is leaving their marriage bed to her right which means that and putting it in the will and of course it would have gone to her anyway but for him to actually write in the will Shows a degree of affection and concern. Actually shows a degree of, yeah. And also... It's an affectionate thing for him to do. It's the sort of thing a poet would do, Mm -hmm. too. Exactly. It's a very romantic gesture. I'm going to leave you the bed that we've slept in together all these years. Whenever I would come home from London, this would be the bed we'd be in. I'm leaving it to you. Yeah. And so that's Shakespeare. That that was his life. A fairly normal, standard life, besides being an amazing genius. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So... We, we talked about blank verse. I think when people just assume Shakespeare is great, I think, and we don't, we don't really talk about much of what has made him so great right. without really understanding why he was as great as he was. And the main reasons, the pro, two, two real reasons. One, he pretty much innovated the play as we know it today. Until that point, you had the very Aristotelian play where it would be an action that was brief, complete, and of a certain magnitude, which would have been how Aristotle would have set out plays in um, the Poetics when he was looking at what, which Aeschylus, was it an Aeschylus play or whatever play he was looking at? Sophocles. Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare took this and instead of having it just happen over this certain, like a day or something, he would expand it to where you would have a longer period of time more dramatic action happening within the play. And that doesn't mean that plays before then weren't doing this sort of same thing. But Shakespeare really gave us the play and 
TV drama and movies and everything that we have today, where you have the early setup, then you have the sort of slow climb to the denouement, and then the collapse towards either a happy ending or tragedy. And that's the format that Shakespeare has given us. And we see him developing it throughout his career. He does have an early period where his plays aren't quite as well-formed as they would be in his later period. What's an example of a not as well-formed play? Um, something like the tame, um, well, the Taming of the Shrew is pretty good, but Two Gentlemen of Verona, for example. Mm-hmm. But then he would quickly get into his historical period with his Henry plays. And with his Henry plays, you would actually see him beginning to develop his style that would become what he would become known for. Until finally, you would get into his later period where we would get things like King Lear. And as far as his chronology falls, King Lear is towards the end of his career. His last play was, the tem- was well, I think Henry VIII and two, the two noble kinsmen, according to this, came later. But The Tempest is one of his last plays, 1610. King Lear was in 1605. So it was right at the height of his creative powers. Mm-hmm. So King Lear is often considered to be one of his best plays. And in my own estimation, my two favorite Shakespeare plays are King Lear and The Tempest. Mm. So I can read those plays over and over again without really getting bored. So, but that's, yeah, if you kind of want to look at it that way, he, I mean, the early period for Shakespeare, it's sketchy and it's brief and it's a lot of it's confused by which play actually fell when, like, and did this play actually come here? Or did it come here? But we know for sure he had a fairly early period where he was getting established in around 1584. And then we have the historical plays, which take up most of the 1590s. And the Henry plays are amazing. They're great. And then by the time you hit the 1600s, that's when he has all his really great plays starting to get produced. Um, Hamlet, right at 1600, 1599 is when it came out. So uh, that's Shakespeare's period. And so he's really developing and fine-tuning this play form as we have it today. And you can't, um, I always get this wrong overstate Shakespeare's influence on... You cannot overstate. You can't overstate. You can't. You can't overstate. Shakespeare... Let's just rephrase this. Change. Shakespeare was really important. We're going to stop right there. (laughs) Shakespeare's influence was significant on the format and on the form of the the dramatic forms we have today. I just want to prove for our listeners that you can overstate it. Okay, go ahead. Shakespeare changed playwriting on Mars. Maybe. I don't know. Shakespeare (laughs) blotted out the sun with his genius. He could have. Blood Anthison has nothing to do with our dramatic forms. If there is ever playwriting on Mars, it will have been impacted by William Shakespeare. Shakespeare's plays were so amazing in their forms that the sun exploded. Perhaps. (laughs) I just overstated his his importance, his effect. Perhaps. (laughs) Okay. Um, Back to Shakespeare. Uh, You can overstate it. Thank you, Nathan. I like to prove this every time. Those are always valued additions (laughs) to the conversation. (laughs) Um, The other innovation that I find fascinating about Shakespeare is that he gave us hundreds and hundreds of words that we hadn't had until that point. Um, He gave us like the word ruination. um, And there are lots of other words. Ruination, I know for sure, because there's a great book by... Um, Owen Barfield called Poetic Diction, where he just traces how ruination has changed since Shakespeare. But yeah, he gave us all these words that we now use. He created because he needed a word to express the idea he had, and he was just that creative and brilliant that he would come up with a word and that would become standard usage. He was basically the Google of his time <laughs> or the uh, slang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used the word ruination in uh, my Solomon Lion song once. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. That was in Psalm 22, right? 18. 18. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Yes. Listeners should go and listen. Our own little Shakespeare here. I I didn't 
coin that word. Actually. You didn't coin it. Right. Have we coined any words I for those? One time. Yeah. Have we coined? Uh, I mean, we've coined word. The bookening. Bookening is a word, is a word that, that we've we coined. coined. Nice. Um, Popportunism. It's a word we coined on Sound of Sanity. Yep. And you guys are Shakespeare's. We are. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. More yeah. or less. More or less Shakespeare's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sitting in the presence of greatness here. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so those are two. And there are, and I mean, obviously, it's just the. You can't mimic it. Inimitable? The inimitable style that he has. Mm-hmm. Just the, this wonderful turns of phrases, his ability to write these lines that are beautiful and timeless like Ben Jonson caught on with his poem. That's why Shakespeare is as great as he is. No one can match it. And then he has these plays that the characters all are real. They feel, uh, you can imagine these characters as fully formed people. They're not cartoons. They're not two-dimensional. And so um, his uh, knowledge of human psychology, of human motives and emotions, and his way to add tension into the narrative and his mastery of narrative form to uh, tell his story and propel the story forward. It's just unparalleled. That's the word I was looking for. Unparalleled. (laughs) So that's why Shakespeare is Shakespeare. But this leads us into one of the last things to say about about Shakespeare, which is we see him that way. And we begin kind of hinting at it this whole time. We see him as this great genius that had these abilities and had these amazing skills that no one else had. He was seen that way kind of at his time, but not necessarily in the way we will. And we'll get to that in just a moment. And today we put him in this, um, in the same category we would put most geniuses like Einstein and he's in like the top 20 it's you got your Socrates you got your Shakespeare you got your these guys who we put on pedestals and idolize and that's because we have an understanding of genius that is fairly unique to our era and it comes out of the romantic period but what what about the Greek muses right didn't they understand genius and that's well that was paganism Mm -hmm. and they thought that they were inspired by the gods Right, they and a lot of them, even then at that time, they were like Plato was just would joke about like, well, actually they're just drunk, mm-hmm. and that's why the god of inspiration is Bacchus often. Often, and so the idea that we have of this unique, almost mystical, inspired individual who is worth almost uh, he, he's like a priest or a demigod almost mm-hmm. as the genius, an oracle, an oracle, yeah. Someone who has been given in the Romantic era, they were the Aeolian harp was a famous metaphor they would use. And the Aeolian, Aeolian harp, you can go and read poems. It's, I think, A-E-O-L-I-A-N, um, would be this instrument you could hang outside your window and the wind would blow through it. And that was the image of the genius. This instrument that was being ready, that was, be, was made to be played by the universe, mm-hmm. right? And then when, they, when it would be played, it would give back to us these beautiful and profound statements. We still have this assumption today. We look for it in our artists. We look for it in our politicians. We look for it in these great geniuses we want to lead us and to tell us the truths about life. Um, has Cormac McCarthy come out by now? Yes. Yeah, a lot of people look to Cormac McCarthy that way. And uh, to some extent, I think Cormac McCarthy probably looks at himself that way, from what I can understand. James Joyce looked at himself that way. As this great man being given a great responsibility, and through art, they were going to profoundly influence the world. And you can see actually where things like um, the Popcorn Coalition and people who are into redemptive themes in literature, they are perverted by this sort of thinking. And that art is the thing that's going to save us. And this comes from Nietzsche when he talks about the great artists being like Dionysus springing up on stage. And they are through passion and they're going to save us because passion is the only way to get to truth now that thinking and reason are dead. True story. When Nietzsche went crazy, he 
wrote letters to people and signed them as Dionysus. Dionysus yeah. yeah. Or as the crucified one. Yep. <laughs> so, and you have guys today who still just worship Nietzsche. And it's his oldest time. It's just like I've, sa- I've said before, it's just Gnosticism. People think that when you mix this feeling of the mystical that you, that you think you know, but nobody else gets, mm-hmm. it gives you this feeling of power. And whoever then gives you that knowledge, that thing becomes the God you're going to worship. Right. And um, or the, that the person. today is people don't actually think they're worshiping gods, though. An atheist can have this same mystic union with, with the universe as yeah. it pours itself out through the geniuses of the great conversation. Yeah. And so, um, and, oh, what was the homosexual poet who wrote Leaves of Grass? Whitman. Whitman, thank Whitman. you. Whitman. Walt Whitman, he, was, he wrote a famous essay where he called poets the, priest, the new priests of the world. This is just, this is how we look at artists today. And this is how we look at genius. And this, and this is important to understand because if you really want to understand Jane Austen, if you want to understand Shakespeare, the way that they looked at what they were doing, you have to completely eliminate this sort of thinking from your mind. And it's because Shakespeare would not have seen himself as having some mission that he was given because of his great heavy loaded gift, right? This heavy responsibility that he had had from birth to carry out this genius that was now on his shoulders. Like you see that just completely corrupts James Joyce. What Shakespeare would have seen was that he had a talent, he had a gift with words, he enjoyed it. It was something that he would have just done naturally. He loved to write, he loved, he had a wit, and he loved to tell stories. It's kind of the same thing you see with Dickens, early Dickens, as he was growing up. He would always be telling stories to other boys and stuff. So you imagine Shakespeare must have been the same way, and that what he would have seen himself more than a genius would have just been a craftsman, someone who was a wordsmith, someone who was taking on the employment of working with words and telling stories for a living. And so that means he would have learned his craft, he would have fine-tuned his craft, and that's kind of, that's been in the background behind this context is we see him fine-tuning his craft with his early plays aren't quite as accomplished as his later plays, and you see him developing this craft and this skill that he can use to entertain people. And it has a purpose. Further evidence for this, the fact that as soon as his career is over, he goes back home and he invests his money wisely and then ends his days with his family having parties with his kids, right? And um, he was a humble man, a quiet man. We know a lot about Ben Johnson and we know a lot of bit cr- about Chris Marlowe. You, you know why? Because they lived loud, fancy lives. Mm-hmm. We know a lot about John Donne. Why? Because early on in his life, he lived a loud life. And he repented of it towards the end of his life, but by then he was already well-known, right? Shakespeare was quiet. He was primarily concerned with his craft and the craft that he loved and that he mastered more than anyone else ever has. Mm -hmm. And then he died a uh, very humble life. And uh, the more I talk about this, the more I just love Shakespeare every time we do him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the more I get irritated with the fact that people just can't stand that about him. They just, they want to... Make him into... Can't leave him alone. Can't let him just be a humble craftsman who was more or less a family man who, when he had made his his fortune, retired Mm -hmm. early. He's got to be a guy so he could be with his family, channeling the divine essence somehow. A great artist who consumed, or pa- we're just so angry with him for being that way that we can't accept it. So he's got to be five thousand different people, and right, yeah, or to have never existed, mm-hmm. or yeah, and all these movies that you have, like I've never seen Shakespeare in love, but we have to imagine that he had to be some passionate guy. 
Yeah, he can't fall. Right. And I have seen it a long time ago. I wouldn't recommend it. I think it's got a lot of naughty stuff. But uh, Shakespeare, uh, he has a passionate love affair with Gwyneth Paltrow, but she's betrothed to someone else. She ends up going with the other guy, you know, because whatever, she that's how she needs to survive. And Shakespeare is heartbroken and devastated. And, yeah. you know, it's all this passionate thing. And that, that's, that's what actually inspired him to write Romeo and Juliet. And because blah, blah, I blah. need to justify my own debauchery in my in the life of my own artistic pretensions and my selfishness and And my my, selfishness i need to justify all of that so let me just project it onto shakespeare because we don't actually know a lot about him so and he's the greatest genius of all time so we can project it all onto him then everybody gets a free pass right and we have years of the art justifies the means Mm -hmm. and we have years of these so-called geniuses performing what we think a genius should be. So you have like Melville mm-hmm. and these guys who are... I, I keep thinking of Hemingway who saw himself in the lineage of geniuses. He was he said when he wrote, he was getting into the ring with, with Shakespeare. That's, with, what, that's who I meant, Hemingway. Yeah. Yep. And it's just and like, so, how arrogant do you have so to I th- be? I think that Hemingway actually has done a lot of damage to the way... So he carried on that idea of genius and just tried to live it out in his mm-hmm. life. And a lot of times when we think of genius, we think of the eccentric man like that or like a... Every character Benedict Cumberbatch plays, yeah. right? If you yep. have a genius, it has to be somebody like that. And then everybody just gets really confused when it just turns out that a genius can be this quiet, unassuming person who just happens to be exceptionally observant mm-hmm. and can just... And committed to their craft. Yeah. And you, I mean, Shakespeare had to be observant. He knew people. Sure. Right? But we see this, we've seen it all over the place. Jane Austen, the most observant novelist we've ever read she never married and she wrote six of the greatest novels celebrating marriage rarely traveled outside of her house and and love and all things that she actually didn't experience you know yep Um, eb white fairly quiet life and yet was able to write the books he did so i mean we see it there's plenty of evidence for it Mm -hmm. there's plenty of evidence that some of the greatest writers are often very sober in their life i mean tolstoy might be an exception but yeah well, go listen to our Ready Player One trial episode if yeah. you want to hear about that. Let's not do that again. <laughs> so there you go. Don't try and be a genius. Don't try and be an eccentric. Yeah. Don't be one of those high school girls that's like, I'm so crazy. Because you know, the one thing about those people is they're not that crazy. Yep. Crazy people don't say, I'm so crazy. They're just sad. What's that? They're just sad. Yeah, they're just sad and kind of lame. So I think that's pretty much it. I don't think I've talked anything about King Lear, though. (laughs) That'll have to come next week. When we talk about King Lear. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Booking, as always, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me, features the great Brandon Chastine along with the aforementioned people. Go to iTunes, give us a nice review, write it in Elizabethan language if you like, put it in iambic pentameter. Tanner, you know what you need to do. Uh, no, we didn't do. What's that? I'm not going to mention it, but. Daughter shout outs. Oh. But we don't have time. Oh, no. We'll just have to double them up next Yeah, time. we'll do two donor shout-outs next episode, folks. Awesome. Or something. We'll make it. We'll make donor shout-outs really special. We're committed to doing donor shout-outs. Here's a shout-out to all you donors. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, donors. Pretty haste. Thank yes. you, guys. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash thebookening. You can sign up to get a donor shout-out, and generally you'll get one. That'll be more exciting than that one. 
And thanks for listening, everybody. 